The point is Jesus. In a culture where the norm is to put our confidence in ourselves, only he who obeys can believe. God is greater than our hearts. Faith expresses itself through love, and love expresses itself through obedience. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn in your, on your phone, you have a Bible app to 1 John, letter of 1 John. I love this letter. We could spend weeks on it. We're just really going to spend a day uh, on a couple passages out of 1 John. But John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And this is a lot. Most of the disciples got, got killed, got martyred, imprisoned along the way. John actually lived to be an old man, but he lived in exile on the island of Patmos. And so near the end of his life, he wrote three letters, at least, to the churches. And we have those in the scripture. And uh, the, the nature of his first letter is, is recursive. There are these, these themes that he keeps kind of swinging back to. Picture like a, a carousel or a merry-go-round, you know? And as you're going by, it's like, oh, I've seen that before. And you definitely get that feel as you read through John's first letter. And one of those themes is, is knowledge, is to know, but specifically to know Christ. And in fact, he starts out the whole letter by saying, what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have experienced by walking with Jesus, this is what we're telling you. This is what we're proclaiming. We're not making this up. We're simply telling you what we have experienced of Jesus. Knowledge is a big deal. It's a big deal on this, in this campus, in this institution of academia, right? Francis Bacon, who has no relation to, to Kevin Bacon, but is separated by six degrees, um, said, or is, is known to have said, knowledge is power. In Lots of philosophers and um, uh, writers along the way have said, actually, that's not true. It's not knowledge that is power. It is actually the application of that knowledge. It is what you do with what you know. But how do you know if what you know is really what you should know? It's too early for that question, right? What is the, the measuring standard of knowledge? Even when we get to Christianity, there's a myriad of theologies and of doctrines and ways that Scripture is interpreted. And it's important to have solid doctrine, and it's so vital to have biblical theology. And the way we interpret Scripture is vitally important, but they aren't really ultimately the point. The point is Jesus. Jesus had a sidebar with some religious leaders one time. He said, look, you, you study the scriptures incessantly. You know the scriptures inside and out, but you fail to see that all of the scripture points to me. You've got all of this head knowledge, but you cease to really know, to really have a, relation, a relational knowledge 
with the God of the universe. And that's the whole scope of John's letter to the church, that it's all about Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 16, look at that. 1 John 3, 16. He says, take love, for example. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to then lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's what we do with what we know. Or in this case, who we know. John goes on, chapter 3, verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Listen, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. John wrote this letter to the church when it was becoming increasingly more difficult to be a Christian. The world was getting increasingly more chaotic. John wanted to reassure Jesus' followers that our confidence is rooted in Jesus. And as we, as we know him, as we experience him, our confidence continues to deepen no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what our, our personal circumstances in a culture where the norm is to put our confidence in ourselves, to only trust in our own achievements, our own abilities, our own work ethic, our bank account, or the, the promises or platforms of some political regime. The apostle John reminds us that confidence is only in the abiding presence of Jesus. We know him. And in his eternal Promises. We know where this thing is going. And that knowledge gives us courage and perspective in the present, not defined by our circumstances, because God is a God who keeps his promises. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, the writer of Hebrews says. We are those who live differently. We are those who live confidently. We are those who live intentionally. We are those who live obediently. Our confidence is not even based on our ability and consistency to be obedient, to keep his commands. That would be putting confidence in ourselves, and then we're back on shaky ground, right? No, our confidence is in God. Our hearts are at rest in his presence, even on days, get this, folks, even on days when our hearts condemn us. Do you have those days? Even on days when our hearts condemn us and we are filled with fear and we're filled with shakiness and we're filled with all sorts of trepidation, the promise is that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows. And we are free then to receive his gifts of grace and free to keep his commandments and free to give him glory. So John says, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. 
We receive from him whatever, whatever we ask, not because he's some sort of vending machine, but because we are in relationship with him and proximity to him, and we start to take on his nature, and we start to think about the things that he thinks about and care about the things that he cares about. And so that actually changes the way that we pray, the way that we ask. And we start to keep his commands and do what pleases him because it becomes normative. And this is his command, John says, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. All of it funnels down to those two commands. Jesus said that to one of the religious leaders. Religious leaders said, hey, of all the commands, you know, the Ten Commandments, plus we've added another 600 plus. What's the most important? And Jesus said just two things, really. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's Matthew 22. It's not just about belief. It's not just belief about Jesus. It's actually trusting him. It's relying on him. It is connecting to him. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It is relational trust to to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's like all-encompassing, right? That's the Shema of the Old Testament, of the Torah. That is with all in. So belief isn't just ascending to some, some doctrines and some biblical truths. It's actually trusting that God is who he says he is and that you are who he says you are and that this world is going where he says it's going. We have to trust God with a gap between what we want and desire and what God says is actually better. Our, our disobedience is rooted in our own decision to name what is good apart from what God says. And here's the deal. I mean, we're limited, right? We are, we are blinded to the big picture. At any given moment, we can't comprehend how he is working to fulfill his eternal purpose. And our vision is limited because we are inside the story. And so we trust the God who has the whole story. We believe in Jesus. That's the first command. And the second command flows out of that. As we believe in Jesus, as we trust in Jesus, as we start watching Jesus work and move, then we start mimicking him. And so we love one another. John goes on, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, flip over to chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. John goes on because it's recursive. It's a carousel, right? He says, this is how we know that we love one another, that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And this is love for God, to obey his commands. And get this, his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world? He who believes, trusts that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know how that hits you this morning, that his commands are not burdensome. Because sometimes that doesn't feel like our own experience. Sometimes they feel like a huge burden. I mean, to be aligned with Scripture in a culture that says that you can pick and choose which parts fit your own comfort level. To be sexually pure in a culture that is obsessed with sex. To be sober in a culture drunk on self-determinism and cheap beer. To love and serve others in a way that actually costs you personally. To be obedient to what God says is good and life-giving in a culture that mocks commitment. Those things feel weighty. His commands feel burdensome. It seems implausible. How could God demand something that feels so implausible? John says his commands are only burdensome when we try to hang on to the world and onto Jesus at the same time. They feel burdensome because we are stretched in two different directions. At any given moment, they may feel burdensome because our vision is limited and we're called to trust and obey. Trust and obey. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, my burden is light. So his commands are really just two things, love God and love one another, or as John puts it, walk as Jesus walks. Let's go back to chapter two, just for our last little passage of 1 John today, a little snippet. Chapter two, verse three. We know, John says, as we come back around the carousel, that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Then he gets really practical. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. He's already said that to know without action, knowledge without action is not knowledge. That knowledge, the way that that God talks about knowledge is experiential. It's moving from a good idea to actually acting upon it. It's acting on what we believe about Jesus. John 13, 17, Jesus says, now that you know these things, You'll be blessed if you actually do them. John 14, 15, if you love me, he says, you will keep my commands. That those two entities are entwined. Love of Jesus in keeping his commands, just doing what he says. And that makes no sense outside of relationship. Outside of relationship, it's just religious duty. It's just doing the deal so that we get the deal, right? But in relationship, it makes sense because in relationship, we actually listen, right? In relationship, we are abiding together. That being with Christ inevitably leads to doing for the glory and reputation of Christ. That we can't help but care. We can't help but see things from his perspective. 
We love this passage of scripture around here, so you'll probably hear it a lot. But John 15, Jesus says in verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. Does that, does that seem like a relationship? He says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If, any, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is a mutual indwelling. Ah, oh, that is such a cool picture that we are abiding in, we are remaining in, we are dwelling in Christ, but he's also remaining in and abiding in and dwelling in us. So instead of bare minimum discipleship, it is like all in commitment. To walk, the word to walk in the Greek, means an outward expression of an inward reality. It means to align with, to keep in step with Jesus. Literally, it means to conform to the shape of Christ, to start to anticipate his steps, right? To take our lead from him. If we want the assurance and the confidence of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance that frees us in turn to accept God, other people, and ourselves, we must be willing to enter into the life of faith, the life of trust. Faith expresses itself through love, and love expresses itself through obedience. So let me ask you this question. Going into this school year, what would it take to live a life of faith? What would it take, what would it look like to walk with Jesus, not in a compartmentalized kind of way where we come in and do the Sunday gig and then we kind of go live for ourselves the rest of the week. But what if this is a 24-7 relational, experiential commitment? What if the knowledge of Jesus informs the knowledge of everything else? What if he is this concrete foundation, this unshakable kingdom that we can not only depend upon, but actually build everything else upon? What looks like faith in your life going into these next few weeks and months? Um, the first step is in Jesus' words to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow. To deny ourselves, that feels like death because it is. <laughs> Galatians 2.20 says, I've, we die to ourselves, but we live for Christ, right? Bonhoeffer said, it's tearing ourselves away from other attachments in order to follow him. How can you hope to enter into communion with God when at some point in your life you're running away from him? Only he who obeys can believe. 
They're entwined. Love of God, listening and following. I want us to just reflect almost in a kind of a confessional way, which might seem a weird way to start this year, but I've got four or five questions I just want to lay over us as an invitation. And then I'm going to ask Dave to come up and um, wrap up our time with some prayer, and then we'll sing one more song together before we go. Okay? Can we just kind of, if you want to close your eyes and reflect on these questions. And Dave, if you want to come on up. First, just a quick quote from Erwin McManus. God's desire is not to conform us, but to transform us. Not to make us compliant, but to make us creative. His intent is not to domesticate us, but to liberate us. And that is a, that's a, a trust gap that we have to actually see the way of Jesus as the way of freedom. So let me ask you this. Why does obedience sometimes feel so oppressive to me, God? Are related wounds that you want to heal in me? Would you help me to trust your love and your good plan for my life. Would you help me commit to not just knowing about you, Jesus, but to actually know you?